Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Mostly Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. 
So in Yiddish, gefilte fish means stuffed fish. And we always look to the gefilte fish as sort of the symbol of just the resourcefulness of, of how far you can stretch one fish to feed a family. That's Jeffrey Yaskowitz. Yaskowitz and Liz Alpern are here to discuss their book, The Gefilte Manifesto, New Recipes for Old World Jewish Foods. But first I chat with Matt Goulding, author of Pasta, Pane, Vino. Goulding traveled Italy to discover both the old and the new, food made in the traditional manner, as well as young chefs at the cutting edge of a new Italian cuisine. Matt, how are you? I am doing well, Chris. Yourself? Uh, good. In Pasta, Pane, Vino, there's two totally different themes. On one hand, don't mess with tradition. You write, every time a chef puts cream in a sauce and an Italian chef dies, we're not just offended, we're actually vomiting. <laughs> I like that quote. <laughs> and, and then on the other hand, you write, everywhere you turn in Italy, you see examples of a cuisine in a moment of great change, perhaps the greatest this country has seen since World War II. So on one hand, if you add garlic to Amatriciana, you know, there, there are riots in the streets. On the other hand, people are, are folding in matcha powder into fresh goat yogurt. <laughs> right. So how, how does that work? Tradition versus the new, they just coexist? You know, from a traditional standpoint, I think there's still a lot of people inside and outside of Italy who believe Italian food should not be changed. It should be the way that it's been. The carbonara should always be made this way. The ragu should always be made that way. And those traditions should be protected but the side effect of that is sort of treating cuisine as if it were a museum piece, you know, Italian cuisine as something encased in amber. And of course it's not, right? It's a culture. And culture, by definition, is this living, breathing, evolving organism. And so I think for a long time, that tradition really was maintained pretty firmly. But now that Italy has been you know, in a, a period of growth, a period of more stability, and you're seeing a lot of younger chefs finally kind of taking steps forward. Your book, Pasta, Pane, Vino, it's really a travel book, too. It's, I mean, I have to say, if anyone wants to go to Italy, they should buy this book because there are all sorts of places you've never heard of and also lots of eateries that you've never heard of. So Matera, if I pronounce that properly, I, I almost fell over reading this. Could you tell me the story of that? Because uh, this, this, these are houses that were really caves, and the government swept everyone out of this town back in the 1950s. Right. So the old part of Matera, Matera is in Basilicata, right on the edge of Puglia, sort of near the heel of the boot. And it's really one of the most stunning small towns, small cities or large towns of Italy. But it's had this very tragic history where for the better part of the, you know, the first half of the 20th century, you have this community of cave dwellers living in what was called the Sassi, literally homes that were carved directly into the side of the mountain. And, you know, the system had been around for hundreds of years, but the Italian government moved in and forced these people out of these old cave homes and then relocated them to these massive sort of block government housing. Why did they do that? They did that because they felt like the conditions of these caves were getting worse and worse, that the health conditions, that the poverty was, was kind of growing out of control. And this is sort of post-World War II Italy where they're trying to sort of clamp down on some of these things and provide some better services for, for Italian citizens. So it was, I think it was done with the right intention. The execution of it was extremely questionable. It remains extremely controversial. But 
the, the great story here is that now people have returned to this part of Matera, to the old caves, and they've begun to build new businesses in them. So you'll find bed and breakfasts and agriturismos. You'll find a cool bar, an awesome restaurant. And it's really one of the most magical towns I've ever been to. And it's sort of finally coming into its own in southern Italy. Are there other spots, one or two, uh, you ran across in your travels that most of us would never have heard of, like Matera, that we ought to visit? Yeah, I think uh, another one that comes up for me is Lecce, which is part of Puglia. You know, it's um, very famous for its limestone. So the entire city is this beautiful, soft, smooth, white limestone, gorgeous old churches, wonderful old structures, and I think a, a really exciting new food scene, including a restaurant called Bros, which is run by a 24-year-old chef who may be one of the most talented cooks pound for pound in Italy. So what about, just mention a couple other chefs or, or restaurants, uh, cafes that are really out of the ordinary? Sure. For me, one of the the most, I'll give you a couple more, but one, one of the most ex- extraordinary experiences for me was, was spending a lot of time in Sardinia. And, um, you know, I, I had been talking to Massimo Bottura, you know, the famous chef from Morena, and he had said, you got to go to to Sardinia and you got to go see a guy named Roberto Pezza. And Roberto Pezza was born and raised in Sardinia and has been there trying to fight for the food system for most of his career, a remarkable chef kind of operating a very, very excellent, high-quality restaurant, the only Michelin star in Sardinia, in a town of 25 people, basically. There's two streets, and there's this restaurant. What's the name of the restaurant? It's called Sa Aposentu. Sa Aposentu. And um, it's it's in an old home, an old po- it used to be an old pasta warehouse there that has been converted into this beautiful restaurant. And more importantly, that Roberto, I think, lives and breathes this Sardinian culture. And I think it's a part of Italian cuisine and travel that is so largely ignored by both Italians and travelers alike. Now some advice for tourists. So, and I include myself in this, what are some things that would really improve your experience? I mean, one thing I would start with, honestly, is is getting out of those big tourist centers. I mean, find two or three places that you didn't know anything about and go there. Stay in agriturismos. You know, there's Italian family-run sort of bed and breakfast. By law, they have to be, I think, 50% of their revenue has to come directly from agricultural production. So that means they're making olive oil, they're making their own cheese, their own charcuterie, and that means that you're going to be right there to experience that. So it's not just a really affordable sort of night to eat well and, uh, you know, a good bed and a good breakfast in the morning, but also an education in the local cuisine and a terroir. And um, you're going to have a really intimate experience the more that you stay in these agriturismos. You spent a lot of time, a lot of mileage in Italy, and I would guess there were more than a few moments where you came across something you didn't expect. Uh, What was one of those moments? Yeah, you're right. I mean, there was there were a lot of those moments. That's the wonderful thing about Italy. But I think the one that sticks out the most for me is um, it's actually the last chapter in the book. It's about Lake Como, an area that I had long sort of avoided because I just thought it was sort of you know glitz and glamour and the George Clooney's and the upper crust of the world. Um, but I ended up there sort of by serendipity and you know ended up in a tiny little village next to Bellagio called San Giovanni. And um, everything was closed. There was one little restaurant that I was open there, and we stumbled into this place called Ristorante Mella. And it turned out to be a husband and a wife. And the husband woke up every morning and did all the fishing along the lake shores. 
in the afternoon, uh, his wife prepared the food. And it was just, um, it was an amazing sort of change to, to the Italian cuisine that I was used to. You know, lake fish, sort of the second class citizen to ocean fish, but prepared with that same mentality of, of local, of extreme care, of simple techniques, of real respect for the ingredients. And at the end, you'd have 15 or 20 different expressions of Lake Cuomo's sort of aquaculture um, channeled through this one tiny, lovely little family restaurant. So I shouldn't be telling everyone this because I, I want to be able to go back there and find a table. But uh, Ristorante Mella and San Giovanni and Lake Cuomo are really, really a magical slice of Italy. Well, I don't know whether to thank you. For, I mean, your book may ruin all these great places because they're all going to get discovered now. But I'm going to better go quickly before it's all over. Matt, thank you so much. Great book, uh, Pasta Pane Vino. It's it's really remarkable amount of effort and work and uh, extraordinary. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate it. That was Matt Goulding, author of Pasta Pane Vino, Deep Travels Through Italy's Food Culture. You can subscribe and listen to Milk Street Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. Just subscribe and get all of our shows downloaded right to your phone. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will be taking some of your calls. Sarah is the star, of course, of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book, Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you awake? Are you ready to go? Chris, I am ready to do this. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Bill Kennedy, and I live in Victoria, British Columbia. Oh, how nice. How nice. We both said that together. Yes, we did. Okay, well, what's your question? The question is about chili sauces. I found that in many recipes, they will specify chili sauce, and they'll say a few tablespoons or half a cup, and there's many types of chili sauces, and I was hoping you could help me navigate the world of chili sauces. Are these American recipes or international recipes, meaning are they sort of well, old? Well, usually they're American recipes, uh, say if I'm making a barbecue sauce. Mm-hmm. Well, because I just want to throw out that for years when I worked at Gourmet, there was this thing called chili sauce, and it's made by Heinz. It's tomato sauce, garlics, I don't know, peppers, spices, and I have no idea why it was called chili sauce. But we included it in some recipes, too. Well, if it just says chili sauce, and it's a quantity more than a teaspoon or a tablespoon. It's probably... It's probably something... Benign. Benign. Like the Heinz stuff right. is. Well, there are really three kinds. There's the Erzatz chili sauce, Heinz. Which has no chili Th- There's it. a hot sauce, like sriracha or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then there's a chili paste, which is like... Asian. Uh, like black bean chili paste, chili garlic paste. Those are very hot, and they're paste. They're not actually sauces. You right. use very small amounts of those. Right. So I, I would look at the quantity. If it says half a cup, it's that's not, not chili it's paste. It's not Tabasco. <laughs> right. And it's not sriracha. Yeah. It's got to be the Heinz. Yeah. yeah. How much does the recipe call for? Half a cup. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, it's Heinz. If you put a half a cup of sriracha in there, you're... You'd die. Yeah. <laughs> you're in yeah. Uh, for My go-to chili sauce is actually from the joy of cooking. And it's sort of uh, onion and vinegar and sugar and tomato. With no chili in it, right? Right. Well, there's a little bit of chili powder. Okay. The term chilies is also very vague now because, like you say, there are now so many types of chilies. The three kinds of chilies, mild, like an Anaheim or something, or jalapeno is not too hot. Then there's sort of the serrano, sort of middle of the road. And then there's habanero or some of the really, really hot ones. 
So if you're going to substitute, I would just look it up online and see what other chilies are the same In the same, same category. Yeah. If you have an Anaheim versus a habanero. Yeah, you know, you know, you... You're you, in a different world yeah. of pain. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Um, do you ever remove the seeds from a chili to uh, cool it down a little bit? I, I do. I've heard that the heat is in the seeds. It's in the ribs. It's, it's in, in the ribs. It's in the ribs and the seeds. seeds. Bill, that's absolutely a very good way to remove some of the heat, but, but you'll still taste the chili. But you know what's interesting we've learned, I've learned in the last few years, is that chilies like Guajillo and New Mexico chilies, it's not so much the heat, they're fruity, they have yes. a flavor. They do. Chilies aren't just And heat. so if you look at some recipes like carne adovada from New Mexico, you might use six or eight ounces of chilies, dried chilies, mm-hmm. but wow. they're not that hot. No. So some chilies have a wonderful fruity taste. In a lot of cooking, it's not about the heat, it's about the flavor. Right. And so I think those are really interesting chilies to use. I I agree. Like a poblano, for example, which is sort of grassy and smoky. You know, not necessarily that hot, but wonderful flavor. There's just a world of information when you start researching it. Yes. Then you go down the rabbit hole and you never come back out. (laughs) That's what's happened to us. Any rate, Bill, thank you for for your question. Yes. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Most Great Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking failure or complaint, just give us a ring. That number, of course, is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi, who's calling? Hi, my name is Brendan. Hi, Brendan. Where are you calling from? Fresno, California. Nice. How can we help you today? Well, I cook a lot of uh, beans, refried beans and whatnot, and um, I always see on the recipes or shows or whatever, it says, you know, after you cook them, you put them in the blender, and then you refry them in lard, and then it says, it usually says, oh, if you want to help your version, go with vegetable oil or something else. It got me thinking. I started looking at the uh, nutritional values on the, the package of my lard, and I was comparing it to butter and oil and everything else, and it seemed like it was no less healthy. I mean, am I reading that wrong, or is there a difference in the types of fat that you use that I'm just not seeing? Uh, it's monosaturated fats. Um, it's natural, which is good. It's not um, trans fat, which has been turned into molecules that are very hard for the body to absorb properly, which can create disease. I think the point, however, is that lard tastes great, <laughs> and refried beans and lard is just nothing better. So, And you don't really consume that much lard over the course of a year. So I wouldn't worry about the health thing at all. But I don't think it's any worse than butter. Are you using fresh lard? I mean, do you make it yourself? Both. Well, I get the Farmer's John package stuff, and then I also have a Mexican market uh, near my home, so I sometimes get the fresh stuff that they make. One of the things I would just check is the label, because some lard is hydrogenated. It's processed. Is it smooth and creamy? I think it does say hydrogenated. Yeah, that means Hydrogenated. Yeah, you don't don't want that. I would use the fresh stuff you get from the farmer's market, and you can even make it yourself. You can buy it from a butcher you know, the fresh pork fat and render it down. Yes, it is definitely healthier, quote-unquote, than butter. Welcome to the Mill Street Hotline. (laughs) How can we help you? But, I mean, calories-wise, you know, fat is fat is fat. But in terms of its profile, yeah, it is healthier Well, can I just say that... But not if it's the hydrogenated I think the issue is, was it processed? I agree with Sarah. And you want the lard, leaf lard around the kidney, that's the lard you want. And you melt it down. If you get fresh leaf lard, or you can buy it from a place that does this, melt it down or very low heat, a little bit of water with it, 
skim the top off, and, and that's really terrific. And keep it in the fridge. It's all natural. By the way, it makes the world's best pie dough. Yes. Um, oh, it's very flaky. Yeah, it's incredibly flaky and light. That's how they used to make it 100 years ago. So I, I'm all in favor of lard, leaf lard, especially fresh, lard. fresh yeah. rendered leaf lard. Yes. yes. Here's the thing, though, that's just really crazy, is if you wait long enough, all the stuff that was bad for you is now good for you. So, you know, butter, I, I believe, is going to have a comeback. You know, think about red wine and chocolate They've and all, all those things that were bad for you. They're now good for you. So, you know, if we wait long enough, maybe butter will be. But I think the thing about lard is go with the fresh stuff, and it's a better choice than butter for now. Okay. <laughs> all right. Cool. Very good. Well, I think as far as what you were saying, I think everything in proportion, and you're going to be fine. But <laughs> and, That um, is true, in, too. In lard and beans, there's nothing better. Yeah, I so. agree. Yeah. Go for it. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, pleasure. Boy, refried beans and lard is just like one of the best things. Yeah. Maybe it is the best thing. I've been searching my whole life for the best thing. Maybe that finally. I don't know. You're just hungry. Anything's the best thing. I am. Thing. You know, this is. This is really horrible. sort of torture. This is why I like don't read food magazines unless I've just had lunch. Except Milk Street. No, that would make me hungry as oh. can be. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Liz Alpern and Jeffrey Yoskowitz, authors of the Gefilte Manifesto. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but 
pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it, like you did your week. You deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Today I chat with Liz Alpern and Jeffrey Yaskowitz, authors of the Gefilte Manifesto. In 2012, Alpern and Yaskowitz launched the Gefilteria, a food venture that reimagines Ashkenazi Jewish cuisine. Their specialty is, of course, gefilte fish, but not the kind you would find in a jar. This is artisanal gefilte fish made in Brooklyn. Liz and Jeffrey, how are you? Doing great. Yeah, doing very well. Thanks. So you opened Gefilteria, and you've now written the Gefilte Manifesto. What is artisanal gefilte fish? Anything not in a jar? Or is this going back to to an, an old, ancient way of doing it? Well, it's a, it's a great question. I would say that artisanal gefilte fish is defined by a product that's being made with people's hands and with, with craft and with top-quality ingredients. I think that that's a really critical part of it. I, I like to say artisanal gefilte fish is gefilte fish that inspires and doesn't disgust. Mm, I like that. <laughs> Nicely put. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. So I, I read that gefilte means stuffed. So so gefilte was with leftover scraps that were used primarily as a stuffing. Was that the original meaning of, of gefilte fish? So in Yiddish, gefilte fish means stuffed fish. So what you would do is you would traditionally remove all of the flesh from the fish and you would grind it up and mix it with onions and breadcrumbs and spices and then you'd stuff it back into the skins of the fish. And it wasn't necessarily the scraps. This was, we like to say, this was uh, how you would really celebrate and elevate the holidays with, with a full fish on the table. And we always looked to the gefilte fish as sort of the symbol of, of just the resourcefulness of, of how far you can stretch one fish to feed a family. So let's talk about Ashkenazi versus other Jewish culture and food. You're primarily talking about Ashkenazi food here. How do you define Ashkenazi and how do you define Ashkenazi food? So uh, 
usually we say Ashkenazi refers to the culture and the foods of the Jews who spoke Yiddish. So from Central and Eastern Europe, Ashkenaz is sort of the medieval term for Germany, and and then it's a lot of the the Jews who lived in Germany and then moved eastward to places like Poland and and Hungary and Lithuania and parts of Russia and Belarus and and uh, that vicinity. And uh, um, and for a long time, the Jewish world was separated by Ashkenazi and Sephardi Jews, Jews of Spanish origin, and uh, who then spread out to North Africa and parts of the Middle East. And uh, and now we sort of recognize them much more diverse Jewish community with Jews from Ethiopia and Jews from India and Jews from Yemen and uh, all other places. But Ashkenazi Jews were perhaps um, the largest Jewish group for a long time. And it's worth saying that in the United States, the vast majority of Jews have an Ashkenazi background. So most of the Jewish food that people in the United States are familiar with is Ashkenazi Jewish food. So Sephardic would be more, because it's, it's North Africa, it's Southern Europe, Spain, that would have more spices and a very different style of cooking? Yeah, yeah. Right now in the Jewish world, the Sephardic cuisine is considered far sexier because it, it has all the, you know, it has, it has a lot more spice. It has a lot more color and vibrancy uh, than what is traditionally seen as Ashkenazi food. So do you feel that Jewish food sort of has a bad rap and, and you're trying to reconfigure it and, and bring it back as sort of something new and exciting? Or do you think it's something that is hard to sell? I think that we both feel that it has a bad rap, that it is misunderstood. And what really guides us and perhaps um, is the basis for the Gefilte Manifesto, our cookbook, was really how to investigate and explore what happened, what went wrong. Why do people think that this food that has so much flavor that is, I mean, we've, you know, eaten all around Eastern Europe. We've cooked these dishes for years and we're just always blown away by by how flavorful these dishes are. But yet, how come our generation, how come our peers think that this food is bland and boring and just monochromatic? And how come they think that gefilte fish comes in a jar and latkes come in a powder in a box, you know? So we um, we really sort of had to look back and see what happened in, in America to make us think that Ashkenazi food was just so limited and so 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 boring. Before we get the recipes, there are a lot of interesting facts in this book. First of all, schmaltz isn't just chicken fat. I always thought schmaltz was ch- chicken fat, but it's any kind of fat. It could be goose fat, any kind of animal fat. Poultry Is that fat. Right? Any Pult- poultry, poultry fat. fat. Yeah. yeah, I like to think of uh, the way you have uh, olive oil. You have extra virgin. You have sort of a, a virgin, a lighter olive oil. You have sort of goose schmaltz, which is the top right. of the line. Duck schmaltz, which is probably, if you can't get goose schmaltz, you go with the duck. And then chicken fat's probably the, 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 the worst schmaltz you can get. But if it's the only schmaltz you got, it's great. <laughs> Sounds like a T-shirt. Go with a schmaltz that you're with, right? Um, so uh, Hungary, I also read Hungary had schmaltz jars in the turn of the 20th century that could be padlocked. They, they sold them that way. I read that. So I, I sort of interesting that schmaltz, I, I guess goose fat, was so prized. A, a friend of mine grew up in France, and he actually travels with his, his goose schmaltz. Like if he comes to your house wow. for the weekend, Whoa. he brings his own goose fat. Um, so another thing I learn many things from your book. Sort of a dark rye bread or dark bread was eaten six days a week, but on the Sabbath, you'd eat challah. So challah was a special bread for one day of the week. Is that right? 
Yeah, I think it's important to think about uh, Jewish cuisine very much in the, the weekday format and then the holiday format. So there were two different modes of cooking. There was what you ate to sustain yourself. Maybe you were a poor family. You didn't have so much. So you were going to eat the bread that would last the longest and give you the most nutrition and was probably the cheapest to make. And then, of course, for, for the Sabbath, once a week, you would really save up to make those special dishes, those foods that were a little bit more luxurious. So bread is the perfect example of that. So in the Bialy versus Bagel War, one of you, maybe Liz, I'm not sure, said something like a bagel's just a hyped-up Jewish bread. Now, which of you said that? That was me, yeah, yeah. Okay, you want now, you're, now you're in big trouble. So, so <laughs> could one of you please describe what a Bialy is in case someone listening doesn't know? Sure. It's, a, it's, a, it's quite a simple uh, yeast dough bread, uh, very just flour, water, salt, yeast. Um, but then you actually top it with some onions and generally poppy seeds. Um, and what distinguishes a bialy from a bagel is that a bagel is boiled and then baked, and a bialy is, is not boiled. So it's just baked, um, but it doesn't puff up like a roll. So it's kind of a flatbread, but uh, a chewy, doughy flatbread covered in onion and poppy seed. I mean, it's pretty great. So why, why are you not such a huge fan of the bagel? It's just hyped up Jewish bread. Oh, Chris, don't get me wrong. I love, I love bagels so much. You know, I grew up in the New York area. Bagels were just essential for the mornings. It just feels like, you know, bagels have just become sort of the Jewish food that made it, right? It's the one that all around the world, you know, you can get Jewish bagels in the supermarkets. But then the Bialy is very hard to find. You know, you're lucky if you can find one or two bakeries, you know, even in Manhattan now that make a good Bialy. And uh, and yet they were just, I, I just feel like they were, they never got the the attention or the love that they deserved. And so, I would say that that's for good reason. I mean, I love a Bialy, but a, a Bialy is, it's a much less practical uh, vessel for for toppings than a bagel. I mean, a bagel makes so much sense. It's 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 such a grab-and-go well, item. Because the Bialy, the toppings built in. You don't, what, what do you need? It's fallen. The onions fall all over the place. Yeah. yeah. Well, so one of the reasons why the bagel made it so much further is that the bagel has a hole in the middle, and you you could put them on a rod, and you could put them on your push cart and travel out and and sell your bagels more easily. And but I, I appreciate how the bialy, you know, the, the journey it's had to take. Uh, and yet, there's I'm telling you, anyone who who's had a good bialy, they just they have so much love for it. So. Is this what keeps your relationship going? Is it the bialy versus the bagel? Because <laughs> the well, two of you clearly have different debate. points of view. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, we have a lot of lot of debates. Quite a few debates, yeah. But that's the thing. Uh, this cuisine is just it's a cuisine of lots of a uh, of a dialogue. I mean, it's just everyone has different ideas for how you should eat certain foods or how to cook them. What one of the recipes you have is a quick farmer's cheese, which was really appealing to me because the French have, you know, a very they serve that for dessert all the time. What how do you make it? It's just milk and vinegar. Yeah, it's it's really milk and an acid. So you can use vinegar. We generally use vinegar, but people also use lemon juice to get the same effect. And essentially, you curdle the milk. You separate the protein from the fat, um, and then you strain it. So it, it's really one of the simplest recipes. And we cook that a lot with folks who want to learn about Ashkenazi food because we say that's really one of the staples. That's one of the pantry staples. It's sort of the Ashkenazi cooking 101. So Ashkenazi cooking 101, give me two or three other recipes that would be in that course. Uh, well, for me, pickles sort of explain so much about Ashkenazi cooking, uh, partly because that's really helps understand the seasons. And so uh, when you have a, a short window in the summertime when cucumbers are available and, and Kirby pickling cucumbers are available. You mix them with, uh, you know, dill and so much garlic and salt and some spices, and then you're going to naturally ferment them. So they're going to uh, sit and 
Uh, you're going to let them sit on your counter for about a week, and then after a week, you're going to have these perfectly sour pickles, and and those pickles are first of all going to help you digest if you eat them with a the pastrami sandwich at the deli. A good Jewish pickle helps your your body work with all that fatty meat, and um, and secondly, you have all this pickle brine to use when you're done with the pickles and you can use that to hydrate the dough and bread you can use that we make salad dressings to have some fun with it and you can uh, even make some cocktails and there's a resourcefulness at the heart of this tradition and uh, i think pickles just reveal it uh what well, i'm gonna mispronounce it but what is a colant pot a cholent oh. pot. i know that's a big I one that's a, but that that yes, really really yes. really appealed to me could just describe what it is so cholent is a stew. It's a slow-cooked stew. And um, traditionally, or if you are an, uh, a religious Jew now, you would uh, you would not cook on the Sabbath. So Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, you don't actually cook. Um, that's prohibited. However, um, you are encouraged or maybe even obligated to eat a hot meal on Saturday. So what do you do if you need to eat a hot meal on Saturday but you can't cook? Well, you you slow cook something starting Friday before sundown. And so in traditional Jewish communities, um, families would have a cholent pot. They would have a specific pot that was theirs. They would throw in whatever they could. It might be potatoes, beans, meat, a little bit of water, some vegetables, and they would bring it to the, the, the bakery, the town bakery. And the town bakery would have extinguished its oven, but the pot, the, the cholent pots would actually sit in the oven and slow cook to the dying embers of the baker's oven uh, from Friday sundown until Saturday afternoon. And so when a family would be coming home from, you know, from from Sabbath services in the morning, they would come, they, they would stop by, uh, pick up their cholent pot, and they would have a hot meal on Saturday. And it was it was their pot. It would be handed down from generation to generation. And of course, it was a really dramatic and I would say important part of the rhythm of 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 Jewish life in Eastern Europe, having that pot and sort of revealing this hot meal on a Saturday. So we actually, in shooting this book and taking the photos for this book, ended up in a home, unbeknownst to us, that had an old, beautiful cholent pot. And uh, and it was such an honor to be able to use something uh, like that, because today most people just use a crock pot. <laughs> um, when you think back and look at the culinary rules and regulations in Ashkenazi cooking, can you always understand how it got started? Has it made sense at a particular place and time? Or are there some of those rules you just can't figure out where they came from initially? That's a really good question. And I think there are some rules that you can sort of understand. You can see the anthropological reason for them. And there are I'd say majority of the rules that don't really make that much sense, and they're not supposed to. I mean, a lot of the um, idea there's this, uh, this this idea in Jewish law, certain things that you just sort of take as as law because it says so, and some that we believe they come from a place uh, of reason in some kind of way. And one of the things that we just take for ourselves when we're cooking, especially if we're cooking with um, with with those restrictions in mind, is we like to think of these are the limitations to work with, and it's it sometimes makes it more. Uh, exciting to figure out how do you find certain flavors when you um, when you don't have access to to pork for example so the so the Jews in Europe often used goose and they would cure goose uh, meat and they that was sort of the the bird of choice because it had so much flavor and uh, and of course it had so much fat right. to make schmaltz and um, and so that's why Jews were often associated with foie gras that's why they were associated with goose production that was one of the ways that um, Jews would ensure to have they could have a flavorful 
flavorful um, Shabbat dinners and, and Hanukkah meals. Well, some of the great cuisines of the world are all about what they did not have available versus what they did, mm-hmm. right? So if you guys have to cook during the week quickly, what what would you take from your book or what would you take from your experience, your culture, to create you know, a, a midweek supper fairly quickly? How would you do that? Well, I think that, you know, in the essence of midweek cooking is what do you have around? So right. what's in your fridge when you come home, right? So one of the things that I always have in my fridge is sauerkraut that I've made or other pickled items. I would also probably always have some sort of... Um, you know, root vegetables, for example, as long as they're in season. So we have in our book a few recipes that are meant to kind of encourage you to think Ashkenazi during the week. So we have a simple roasted chicken over barley. It's it's easy. It does not take a very long time to make at all. Um, but barley is this super Ashkenazi grain. And we, we mix that with some mushrooms, throw it in a sheet pan and throw the chicken on top so that the juices from the chicken drip onto the barley. That's a That's mm. a sheet pan supper that's super easy. And these are fundamentally Ashkenazi ingredients and it doesn't take long. So I love that. And we have a similar dish with potatoes and, and fish. Um, really easy, you know, pan fried fish over a, over some herbed uh, mashed potatoes essentially. But again, we're using the flavors, the, the, the flavors that, that reference our culture. Thank you so much, Liz Alper and Jeffrey Eskowitz. I mean, uh, the Gefilte Manifesto is wonderful. The history is great. Uh, the food's great. Uh, really a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you. Chris, thank you so much. Yeah, pleasure. Happy to be here. That was Liz Alpern and Jeffrey Yoskowitz. Their book is The Gefilte Manifesto, New Recipes for Old World Jewish Foods. Just when you think you know something about, say, Jewish cooking, it turns out you actually know very little. New York's black and white cookies are not a Jewish tradition. Chicken fat is actually the worst type of schmaltz. Duck and goose schmaltz are superior. Some Jewish breads are actually made with pickle brine. And my favorite bit of trivia, there really is a town called Bialystok, the likely inspiration for Zero Mostel's character in Mel Brooks' movie, The Producers. The next thing I know, I'll discover the bagels are really from Poland and not New York. Well, that's true, too. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, Taiwanese grilled corn. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I was in uh, Taipei in Taiwan a few months ago, and I went to Raohei Night Market. I got off the plane, went to the hotel, and then immediately went to the market. There had to be at least 100 food stalls there, and one of them was a rotisserie corn. Now, each individual ear is rotating over the fire, and we find out later they used a combination of lard as a base and a lot of fermented sauces that are unique to Taiwan, but it had a great color and a terrific outer coating and a lot of flavor. So we brought that back to Milk Street, and we don't have rotisserie, of course, and we don't have some of those fermented pastes like shrimp paste they use. So your job was to figure out how to translate this recipe, because we liked it a lot. Yeah, you made it really easy for us, Chris. Find, you know, food made on equipment we don't have and the ingredients we can't find. That's me. Um, But hey, we figured it out for the most part. What we ended up with was something really delicious that had those same flavor profiles, same kind of texture and smokiness, but without the rotisserie and without the exact sauce. So what we did was instead of using the rotisserie, we just used a backyard grill. And you can use charcoal or you can use gas. The key is we're going to cook the corn in the husks. So rather than baste it while it cooks, we baste it towards the end to prevent that baste from burning. So this is over a high heat or is this a medium heat? 
Yes, Chris, it's high heat the whole time. You have the corn directly over the coals or over the flame. Once it's cool enough to handle, you husk it, you put it back on the grill, and that's when we baste it. So Chris, we didn't have those dried shrimp that you talked about, of course, and we decided not to use lard, but we were able to make a really flavorful sauce with similar kind of flavor profile using oyster sauce and rice vinegar, Worcestershire, and then also gochujang, which is a fermented chili paste from Korea. And even though it's a fermented chili paste, it's not particularly hot. It's more sweet and salty with just a little bit of heat. And what are you going to say to all the listeners who just said, gochujang what? They've never heard of it before and they don't think they can get it. I will say go to your local grocer. Of course, you can always order this online, but you'd be surprised. Gochujang is everywhere now. We're seeing it in all kinds of grocery stores. It really is the next sriracha. And you can buy Gochujang potato chips. You can. So it's on everything. It's, at least it's not a dessert topping yet, but it's on everything else. So you baste it and just cook it a few minutes to finish? That's right, Chris. So it's only going to take another five to seven minutes and then you transfer it to a platter, and then to dress it up a little bit, we did add some fresh cilantro and sesame seeds. Not something they do, by the way, in Taipei, but I think it adds a little bit of flair to it. Catherine, thank you very much. Taiwanese grilled corn brought home from Taipei. You can do it on your backyard grill. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. You can find this recipe and all of our recipes at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions and dilemmas with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Matapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available, ready to eat, with cold-smoked, ultra-thin slices, 
as well as center cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moey, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to answer some of your questions. Uh, Sarah, are you ready? I am so ready, Chris. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, yes, my name is Alexandra. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm pretty good. How can we help you? I love cooking with saffron. And I cook a lot of, you know, the regular things, risotto, chicken saffron. I like to experiment, but saffron is sort of expensive. So, you know, like I could try new things with garlic or any other spice, but saffron I like to be a little bit more careful with because it's so expensive. So I had some eggs. And I thought, oh, I'll just toss it in there somehow. I'll, I'll figure it out. And then I realized I usually use a recipe, of course, when I cook with saffron. And I just thought, well, I guess I should just throw it in. But usually I steep it. And then I realized, you know, I don't know how to sort of improvise with saffron. And I don't want to because I don't want to waste it because it's so expensive. So, of course, I Googled and came across some conflicting information. And then I thought, let me just find out the best way to use it. Do I always need to infuse it? Should I always let it steep in a liquid before using it? It doesn't seem like I can just throw it into some eggs, but I wasn't sure. Well, we were uh, just in Milan. I wasn't, my editor was doing a risotto recipe, which they do, of course, with saffron. And they did soak it in liquid and then added it to the risotto. So that's how they do it. My food editor, Matt Card, grinds saffron in salt or sugar, you know, a little spice grinder. And he finds that works as well, too. Without steeping it first? Yeah. I mean, if you're doing a soup or a stew, you can right. just put it in because it's going to be cooking for a while anyway. Yeah. If you have a situation where you're not having a long cooking and you want to make sure it's evenly dispersed, that's how it's done traditionally is in some warm water. My impression was, you know, in the Middle East and in Spain where they use it a lot is that they absolutely do steep it. Also, the longer you steep it, the more you're going to get out of it. But, you know, in the case of your eggs, eggs can benefit from a little liquid anyway, your scrambled eggs. So saffron is water-soluble. So you could just take a tablespoon of water or so and put a pinch of saffron in there and let it steep for 20 minutes. Then go ahead and make your eggs and just add the water. Right. Okay. And I did think about that, and I was being a little bit on the lazy side that morning. <laughs> well, who because wants to wait 20 minutes before you can, you can even, I mean, 20 would be two the, minutes to make your eggs, the very least that I would soak right. it. You know, it's better if you can soak it longer. I don't think a pinch would work there. I, I, would, just I would be lazy. I would take a pinch of saffron. <laughs> and Is this scrambled eggs we're talking about? Yeah. Then I would just whisk yeah. the eggs yeah. with the saffron. And let it sit in the eggs yeah. before you cook them. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay. Is that okay? Fair enough. But let, but let them sit for 20 minutes before you cooked them. Five. It's 20. <laughs> I'm I, hungry. I, you I'm are like... hungry. No, you have to let it steep for longer. <laughs> well, I... And actually, a warm temperature is better for steeping. Right. So maybe just as long as I can stand before my hunger yeah. takes over. This yeah, is with why some warm water. you know and Sarah was French trained. Because yeah, there are rules. <laughs> no, and details. 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 It's all in the details. It all matters. It's all those little things. I know it does. Yeah. I read some suggestions online where folks were talking about keeping it in some oil. And I thought, well, I know people use truffle oil. I don't think it, it, it releases its flavor in oil. I think No, it water. needs to be in liquid. Oh, that's great. And I, I'm going to try it with the salt and the sugar, too, for some of my baking. Yeah. I'll give, give it a try. Right. Okay. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, pleasure. Take care. Yeah. Thanks. Bye-bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Call us anytime with your questions at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Holly. I live in Salt Lake City. I have a question about leftovers. I know, Sarah, you claim to be the leftovers queen. So, yes, this is true. They talk. Well, 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 not the leftover queen. The, the leftovers. Queen. She had that S in there. I just want to make sure the S yeah. was there. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so I work from home. My husband works in an office, and I like cooking, but I only like cooking like twice a week. So leftovers, in theory, are ideal for keeping lunches ready for the week. But I also hate leftovers, and I was kind of hoping for some tips for remaking leftovers or kind of making them feel less leftover. Like, maybe not. Yes. You know, I think the best thing to do is to cook a big five pound pork roast, something like that, where it's cooked a long time, it breaks down. So then you have this really soft, tender braised meat. Yeah. So you and can, then you can make a taco, you can make a burrito, you can use it uh, in soup. on rice, you can use it in soup, and you can add fresh ingredients, chopped tomatoes, onions, Put it in know, salad, salsa, taco salad. avocado. So it's just a little bit of protein, and you can have refried beans, you can take them out of a can and just put them in a skillet and fix them up a little. So just as a base, I think a long braised meat is well, a really good basis, well, you and you can do anything with it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, roast chicken, rotisserie chicken or roast chicken that you've cooked yourself, or any chicken. You know, you Mm -hmm. can shred up and do all the same things that Chris just mentioned. So that works, too. Pork tenderloin goes beautifully in salads. And soup, you can throw anything into soup and make it more exciting. Canned beans are really great. Puree a few of them and throw all sorts of leftover vegetables. Slice up your pork tenderloin. But I think Chris is right, you know, that shredded stuff just goes anywhere. You know, or tortillas. You can make a tortilla pizza. Or mm-hmm. also have a bowl. You can use bulgur, you can use rice, any other grain, and just put the leftover meat and some other toppings on top of it. A little yeah. queso fresco yeah. on top, some fresh herbs, a little spice on top. Or you could make a miso sauce, or you could put a fried egg on top. Yeah, well, the, I've been doing, like, I'll cook chicken in a particular way with the sous vide or slow cooked or whatever, and then we do those things. We put them in tacos, we put them on salads. But I'm finding that my vegetables that I'm cooking broccoli and asparagus and things like that tend to get kind of smelly after a day or two. I'm just wondering if there are any tricks for things I could put on the vegetables or tips for cooking them so that they don't get quite so soggy or weepy or gross. Well, when you talk about broccoli, it's a crucifer, just like cauliflower and cabbage. They just are funky. I would throw them in soup. 
No, yeah. here's the answer. Don't eat day-old cooked vegetables. <laughs> Grains last, protein last. Also, yeah. the other thing you should do is fermented sauces, soy sauce, oyster sauce, fish sauce, pomegranate molasses, and a few spice mixes, you know, togarashi, sitar, all those things, coarse salt at the end. Just build a grain of rice, the protein, and then something fresh on top. Okay. Beans, Carrots. grains, rice, they last. Carrots are good. Thing. Yeah, I think that's a good plan. It's just a matter of, like, having enough force. Because usually I think about cooking, like, roughly an hour and a half before I have to actually start cooking. So the slow cooking stuff is something I, that requires a little more forethought on Sunday my afternoon. Part. Yep. Holly, yeah. thank you so much. Hopefully that will help a little. Tiny thank bit. you. Thanks, Holly. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. Most of us fill our pepper grinder with black peppercorns, but the French know a great trick. They add a few whole allspice berries. Two or three berries per tablespoon of black peppercorns adds complexity and also pumps up the peppercorn's flavor without calling attention to itself. You can find out more at MilkStreetRadio.com. Next up, Dan Pashman tells us about his latest trip. Dan, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. I just spent some time at the Library of Congress. And you were researching something, I would assume? Yeah, and it turns out that one of one of my favorite food stories that we've covered recently on the Sporkful podcast is at the Library of Congress, which, as you may know, is the biggest library in the world. It has 500,000 food books alone. Hmm. So it's an extraordinary facility with an extraordinary group of librarians. You can imagine any, any library with 838 miles of books needs a lot of librarians. How many librarians do they have? A lot. I said a lot. <laughs> That's the number. <laughs> we ran out of time before we could put together all the facts and figures. Okay. So you, what were you researching in a culinary point of view? Well, back in 1949, a group of librarians at the Library of Congress came together to form the Library of Congress Cooking Club. Hmm. And, and remember, at the Library of Congress, because it is such an extraordinary group of not only books and, and artifacts and manuscripts, but people, you have these librarians who have specialties and experience from all over the world. You have librarians who specialize in every region, religion, culture, every time period in history. And so many of them are experts in the foods associated with those different areas of expertise. And all of these librarians have been coming together for decades to cook for each other, share recipes from their different areas of expertise, to learn from each other. And here's the thing. In the 70s and 80s, this Library of Congress Cooking Club was a huge phenomenon. They had a, a, a golden spoon that was passed from one president to the next, and there were elections, and there were hundreds of members, and a huge mm. holiday party. But as a certain generation of librarians started to retire, the Library of Congress Cooking Club fell on hard times. There was nobody stepping up to fill the void, except two women, Chris, Laverne and Shirley. <laughs> Not come on. <laughs> Not kidding you. Laverne Page and Shirley Liu, who have a combined total of nearly 100 years of experience at the Library of Congress. That's great. Who had been active in the cooking club, had kind of drifted away, but, but when the cooking club was on the verge of disintegration, they came out of cooking club retirement and took over again for their second and third stints as presidents of the cooking club, and they have revitalized it. This sounds great. So, so how does it work? Is this a monthly dinner? Well, they get together, they have a talk, 
it's usually at lunchtime and there'll be something about foraging one one month or there'll be something about kosher law another month. Back in the day, Laverne told me they did whole festivals that were tributes to things like the Harlem Renaissance. They would do this Harlem Renaissance themed cooking event and they would mm. dress up in, in, in attire. But the passion that they have to learn about each other's cultures, I found really inspiring, frankly. That's great. So, so how many people are members today? Well, they at its low point, it was down to uh, less than 50, and now they're back over 100, and it's going strong, and they just, there was a hiring freeze in place at the Library of Congress for many years because of budget cuts, and that was just lifted um, towards the end of the Obama administration, and some new librarians came in, and they have taken a leadership role in the cooking club, and so it's good news because it, it, it's going to carry on. The tradition will carry on. I know what's coming next. You know what's coming next? I, on, on public television, the Library of Congress Cooking Club show. Now, that's a show I'd want to see. Come on. That literally has public television written all over it. <laughs> I just think that would be great. Well, they dress up. They're experts in their field. It actually has lots of historical information, obviously. Great. And, and the cookbook, of course, comes out of that as well. So did you actually attend one of these meals? I, I did. I, I went to one of their big get-togethers, which was, which was, was a lot of fun. And um, I told some librarian jokes along the way. Like? Like what? Like, um, did you hear about the librarian who slipped on the floor? No, I didn't. She was in the non-friction section. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Did you apologize after your talk or before? That's all I want to know. Needless to say, Chris, I was a big hit at the cooking club luncheon. Dan, that's what we love about you. (laughs) Dan Pashman, thank you. It turns out the Library of Congress has a cooking club, and uh, maybe the PBS show is coming soon to a station near you. If if one man can make that show happen, you're the man. (laughs) I'm sure I'll be getting the call. Thanks, Dan. (laughs) Take it easy. That was Dan Pashman of the Sporkful Podcast. This week, Matt Goulding spoke about where to go in Italy to find simple, authentic Italian food. You know, 2,000 years ago, Italy was based on the notion of family, honor, and frugality. Laws were actually passed mandating the consumption of rustic, healthy foods. But, of course, as Rome's wealth increased, so did the culinary arts. Chefs became celebrities, peacocks were on the menu, rich Romans built large freshwater ponds for their prized fish. Trees were irrigated with vintage wines. But today, Italy is back to basics. For the most part, the food is simple and regional. In other words, Italy still espouses basic Roman virtues. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Please remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. You can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our television show, or order our new cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Production assistant, Jackie Nowak. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugertz. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tubob Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.